Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to a brand new series and a very unique one at that, featuring both Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tetz. As you all know, they JLE do two podcasts, the one you're currently listening to, History for the Curious with Rabbi Hirsch, and Conversations with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz. And this week, there'll be a special featuring both. Rabbi Hirsch will be giving more the historical perspective, together with a controversy or two, as he is well known to do. And Rabbi Tetz will be speaking more about his Torah and his impact to the world. So if we could start with you, Rabbi Hirsch, and give us a bit of background, who was the Ramchal? Hi, yes. So in understanding the Ramchal impact, his writings, the controversies, we need to consider not just his era, but also the preamble to his life the decades at the end of the 17th century. And, as importantly, there's the aftermath. Things didn't just end because the Ramchal passed away. Too many boxes had been opened. But the problem is as follows. The Ramchal was born in Padua, Italy, in 1707, and that much we can say with certainty. And basically, from then on, everything gets murky. In other words, we have plenty of information about the Ramchal, both from his own writings and from the writings of friends, of detractors. But it incorporates such a broad spectrum of almost extremes, because the Ramchal was involved in so many different areas that the conclusions we would normally draw pull us in almost contradictory directions were we to try and define him. He was a genius. I don't mean that simply in the sense that he was uh, very bright, you know, that he had a high IQ, but rather that he was able to be a master of very different disciplines of Torah. From his Sforim, most people are aware that he wrote the Masila Sisharim, which is an outstanding work of ethics and Musa. Many people know that he wrote Das Tfunus, Der Hashem, which are fundamental books of faith, uh, machshava, philosophy. But there are also Svarim such as the Klach Pischei Chochma, Adir Bamorim, which are deep Kabbalistic works, not just of ideas, but principles, systems of the Kabbalistic world. And there is so much more. He wrote poetry, some of which was completely secular. So much so that he is regarded by many in the early days of the State of Israel as influencing modern Hebrew literature, poetry. We have, to this day, over 40 of the Ramchal's poems, um, some written in his own handwriting. They happen to be all in Hebrew, but he knew and spoke Italian, French, German. What were they about? 
they range. There is emotional outpouring in some of them. There is what I suppose you could call Kabbalistic discourse in others. And his very first work written at 16 was a play. Beyond that, he wrote a book on Hebrew grammar called Sefer Dikduk. And that means that totally diverse groups of people in varied, almost polar apart fields claim him as a master. And we only have about a third of what he wrote. So it's from that perspective that I'm defining him as a, a genius, a polymath. He was almost an artist as well. Many things. He just defies definition. And within all that, we know clearly that his ultimate goals were very linked to the ideas and teaching of Kabbalah and the concept of Moshiach. Now, the Ramchal was a prodigy from an early age, and he grows up amongst the wise men of Italy. The Renaissance had impacted Italian Jewry more directly than any other place in the Jewish world, and it becomes the norm to live in two worlds, whether they are Judaism and, let's say, Kabbalah, or Judaism and art or secular poetry. Not too dissimilar to Jews in the West today, but with a stronger emphasis. His first Rebbe is Rabbi Yitzchok Cohen Cantorini, a medical doctor who also wrote works of rhetoric and poetry. Another teacher was Rabbi Yitzchok Lampronti. His main teacher, however, is Rabbi Shaya Bassan, who was heir to a strong line of Kabbalistic teachings and would be defending the Ramchal through his lifetime. Now, the Ramchal receives smicha, he's formally ordained at 19, and the original document still exists, I've seen it. However, already at the age of 17, the Ramchal joined a small, hidden away group of pietists known as Mavakshay Hashem. Each member of this group had to commit to study that was purely dedicated, in other words, for the purpose of the well-being of the Jewish people and for the rectification and revelation of the divine presence of the Shekhinah in the world. And the group concentrated on the study of the Zohar, the main Kabbalistic text, literally 24 hours a day. In other words, each one had particular hours, and before one person finished, the next person had to already start, so that it was a continuous 24-hour day learning. But the phenomenon that most especially defined his life was that a mugid, which means a heavenly angel or soul, appeared to him. A mugid is essentially a messenger from heaven, teaching the recipient areas of Torah that they themselves could not access. And in the Ramchal's case, the Magid also provided him with direct instruction, and this all starts from the age of 20. He records in his own diary in the summer of 1727 that as he was immersed in 
a yichud, which is a, a formation of one of the names of God, in deep and intense meditation, he writes, I fell into a slumber, and when I awoke, I heard a voice saying, I am descending to reveal the hidden secrets of Hashem. And this voice then taught him, and the next day this voice returned. And uh, to move our listeners out of the realm of asking, you know, who are you kidding? So the, the Pachad Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Lampronti, who we mentioned was one of his earlier teachers, writes that he saw the Ramchal come out of a trance, out of this state of meditation, and proceed to write page after page in a manner which would be impossible for a human being to be able to think and then write. Meaning, he's transmitting Torah as a conduit, as a pathway that has been passed to him. So we have plenty of evidence from first-hand witnesses of what you might call supernatural outcomes. I will point out that outcomes like this alone don't necessarily tell us if he was on the side of the positive or the negative, because it can be accessed from the other side as well. And then one of his main students, possibly his right-hand man by the name of Yekutil Gordon, who was from Vilna, who'd come to Padua to study medicine, in 1729 writes a long letter to a communal figure in Vienna called Mordechai Jaffa, and he writes there that it's now the time to reveal some of the Ramchal's achievements and activities. And he mentions the Magid. And he lists the Svarim that have now been written on instruction from the Magid, including a second type or a second part of the Zohar. And he makes it clear in this letter that the Ramchal is completely removed from this falsehood of Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah who had Kabbalistic knowledge, who lived 60 years earlier. Why did he write that letter? So it's clear that the letter was written with intent and possibly under instruction, but we're not sure that that is not told to us within the letter or at the time. And it was therefore the first time that news of what was going on in this small town in northern Italy reaches the ears of rabbis in Europe, and the reaction was not slow in coming. Rabbi Cheskel Katzenellenbeugen was the Rav of Hamburg and Altona in northern Germany, and he is horrified when he reads this letter about the Ramchal's group and their learning. You have here an unmarried, young, unknown person teaching totally new and potentially explosive Kabbalah. And these are areas of Torah where both the teacher and the student can be misled if they're not absolutely true to principle. So this is going to make for a very uneasy rabbinate, unsurprisingly. And he passes on this letter to Rav Moshe Chagiz, who's originally from Eretz Yisrael, who was at the time one of the outstanding sages in Europe. And Rav Chagiz's father had been one of the strongest fighters against the false messiah Shabtai Tzvi, who had pulled 20% of Jewry uh, in the radically wrong direction. And in fact, his father had actually originally been a teacher to Nathan of Gaza, who was the sidekick of Shabtai Tzvi. So he was naturally very wary of innovative Kabbalah, especially following someone who 
doesn't, so to speak, have a proven track record. He responds, therefore, very harshly and writes that even when people were privileged to have Magidim in their life, they often didn't teach the Torah as it was handed over to them. So he labels the Ramchal a threat and he gets the leadership of Poland to join him. And the Ramchal has no alternative at this point but to defend himself. In an exchange of letters directly with Rav Chagiz and Rav Katzen he keeps to his claims. He verifies the contents of Yukutil's letter. And in one of his writings, he asserts that the authority to teach and write as he was doing came from heaven, from all the members of the Academy on high, Masifta de Rakia. It's not necessarily going to calm things down, exactly. Yes. In other words, it's not difficult to understand the uh, unease with which jury was permeated, because this is just 50 years or so after events like the false messiah, Shabtai Tzvi. But the Ramchal sees himself as under instruction of the purpose he has to carry out. And he says that this form of Kabbalah represents a tremendous power. It's capable of saving the world if it's properly handled and even though there's a risk of it being misunderstood at this particular point in history it is required teaching and it's the focus of his life now we know that in the 1500s Rebutzak Luria the Ari had begun teaching a select group the hidden depths of Kabbalah but amongst German-speaking jury there was strong resistance to this and so in 1730, Rav Hagiz forced the Ramchal through the Besdin in Venice to take an oath that he would no longer record the Torah that came to him through Magidim and would simply stick to that which is already being taught, not anything new in Kabbalah. And in consultation with Rabbi Bassan, the Ramchal's Rebbe, the Ramchal signs a document of submission. He delivers all of his writings to Rabbi Bassan. They're sealed in a wooden box in front of two emissaries of the Venice Bezdin, not to be learned. And Rabbi Chagiz and others get a signed copy of the undertaking. We have to realize that Venice, by the way, had been particularly hard hit by the belief in Shabtai Tzvi and were eager not to have a repeat. But the Ramchal hasn't given up on all his aspirations. He was still allowed to teach Kabbalah as long as it wasn't new, so to speak. And he was clearly intent on his general messianic mission in this world. He had been instructed to get married, which he did within the next four months, to a woman called Tsipora. The Ksuba is pages long. We will touch more upon that next week because it twinned his marriage or their marriage with the marriage of the Shechina of the Divine Presence and the Jewish people. So it takes place specifically in the month of Av, which is the month of destruction and eventual rebuilding, specifically on the 27th day. Everything is linked to a far greater idea. And once again, I stress that we're talking about an individual of enormous Torah. You know, he wrote a 3,000-page commentary on Kehelis. He wrote this Zohar Tinyona, the second version of the Zohar. And in the 1950s, there is a commentary written by Rav Chaim Friedlander, who is the Mashkech of the great Ponovich Yeshiva. And it's a commentary, not just to his works of Jewish thought, like Das Tvunas, but also to some of his Kabbalistic writings. So 
for one of the leading teachers of the 1950s to need to write a commentary on the Ramchal's books of Kabbalah tells you that without this, you can't even really understand what the Ramchal wrote, never mind sort of dispute him and say, well, you know, I wonder if he's right or wrong. You have no idea what he's written. And as early as 1732, the Ramchal writes to Rabbi Bassan of the worsening conditions. He writes, and I quote, Here in Padua there is a wicked man who has made it his business to write every week to someone in Venice. His name is Chaim Rosanis, and he writes evil without any grounds at all. And the news at once spreads all over the city through that imbecile, Belilius, and he's trying to get Rabbi Bassan to mitigate it because they're going to end up closing him down. And in fact, when it becomes known in Venice that the Ramchal's Sefer Choyker Mekubal was about to be printed, the rabbinate in Venice reacted by giving him a written ultimatum, demanding that he cease teaching any Kabbalah, even existing Kabbalah, even to his own pupils, and that he takes an oath not to publish any work of his own without the permission of the Venetian rabbinate. So the Ramchal is willing to stand by his original agreement of 1730, but these are much more radical conditions, and he pointed out that Padua didn't fall under Venetian jurisdiction. And it is at this point that Rubyak of Emden comes into the fray, one of the leading scholars in Europe, similar to Rabbi Chagiz, and he labels the Ramchal a deviant from Torah. Rav Emden is familiar with the writings of Shabtai Tzvi, as was his father, the Chacham Tzvi. And he says that the Ramchal is learning these writings and incorporating them of Shabtai Tzvi. Now get this, the Ramchal will not deny this. So how does that work? Mm. And it will lead to the greatest challenge in the Ramchal's life and a showdown in 1735 in Frankfurt. But that's for next week. How did he become accepted into, I mean, today he's, that's, we don't Never even... mind accepted. He is accepted by every religious grouping that exists. Svaradim, Ashkenazim, Hasidim, Misnagdim, Modern Orthodox. Well, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. And we will <laughs> hand over to Rabbi Tatz, who's been patient, to get a proper understanding of the brilliance of the Ramchal's Torah. Yeah, you do like the cliffhanger, Rabbi Hirsch. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a very comprehensive insight into the life of the Ramchal and an understanding of who he was as a person and the after effects. Rabbi Tatz, if we could now hear from you more about the works themselves. Rabbi Hirsch has explained him as a person, but would like to hear about his writings, his unique ideas, and so on. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. First of all, thank you, Rabbi Hirsch, for that wonderful historical overview. Rabbi Hirsch always gives us uh, unique insights and originality and really puts us in touch, I think, with the personalities themselves. Yes, indeed, Ramchal was an absolutely outstanding character. As Rabbi Hirsch uh, began to show, he was partly product of his time. You know, Italy was going through a tremendous uh, flourishing of intellectual and creative art at the time. One has to think back to Leonardo, of course, the late 1400s and early 1500s. And although the ghetto actually is an Italian word, and the ghetto was actually a specific area in Venice at the time in the 1500s, ghetto actually means the iron foundry, because that's where they placed the Jews. But by the 1700s, 
early 1700s, when Ramchal was born, as Rabbi Hirsch explained to put him in context, there was a tremendous flourishing of intellectual and artistic creativity, and the Jews actually had a very positive place in that. You know, there were the many Jewish doctors of the time. In fact, one of Ramchal's teachers was a doctor. His friend, Ramesha David Valley, was a very creative individual, was also a doctor. And the medical school in Padua actually proudly included a number of Jews at the time. So Jews were not being excluded from things. And Ramchal was, was exposed to and took on a lot of the creativity of the time. For example, it's well known that the Commedia della Arte, which was the traveling groups of performers in the streets, were part of the local scene. And as you heard, Ramchal wrote poetry. Uh, Hirsch didn't mention this, but he actually wrote a beautiful play on the subject of Samson and Delilah, Shimshon and Delia, their personal relationship. It's in Hebrew, and reading it through is like a Shakespearean type of poetic drama, going into the details of their personal relationship, and, you know, it's a very, very interesting piece of creativity. It's not really that popular in the religious world, as you might imagine, but was printed in Tel Aviv not that long ago, reprinted in Tel Aviv, and you can get it. And he wrote in Italian, he spoke a number of languages, as you heard, so incredibly creative genius and very, very broad. Wrote a book, as you heard, on grammar. Wrote a book, another book, on the logic of the Talmud. In fact, the way it's printed today is with a chart. And you can actually see charted out all the different logical structures in the Talmud, how they fit together. Very dry and, you know, technical. But he wrote works ranging from the totally poetic to the totally methodical and mathematical. So almost impossible to encompass a mind like that, you know, and we're talking about a very young man, of course, he began this when he was in his 20s. By the way, he was unusual for other reasons as well. Apparently trimmed his beard, which mm. was unheard of for a Kabbalist. I heard once that he wore white suits, a very, very unorthodox. He didn't go to mikveh every day, again, unheard of for a Kabbalist. He wasn't married by the age of 24, again, very, very strange. He married uh, a girl from the Finzi family when he was 24. So, you know, guaranteed to rub up certain personalities the wrong way, but of course stood the test of time and he's been the foundational personality in the panorama of our works. But I think Rabbi Hirsch already covered the history. Let's turn to some of his ideas. And we can't but talk about some of the Kabbalistic ideas, although, of course, as, as, as you heard, he wrote uh, way, way Kabbalistic, although I might point out to you that people with Kabbalistic knowledge notice that in all his works there's a Kabbalistic unity. Perhaps I'll try to bring out some of that. Let's talk briefly about the spheres, or Sfirot, if you like, because he speaks about those. Probably the most explicit place he talks about these is in the Klach, 138 Pitchei Chochmah, the sort of, shall we call them, gates or avenues of entrance to the wisdom. Here he's talking about the, the Kabbalistic wisdom. As you heard, he wasn't really allowed to write or teach anything new. So what he did was he taught amazing stuff, and of course a lot of it is new, but he said, no, this is just a repetition of some old stuff, you know. That's how he did it. But uh, he was free when he traveled to Amsterdam later in Israel. But of course he was very seriously constrained. But in the Klach Pischei Chochma, which is a marvelous and amazing comprehensive overview of the whole Kabbalistic structure, and I heard from Rav Moshe Shapiro that the Kabbalistic system that the Ramchal uses is identical to that of the Arizal and later, let's say, the Balalashem writing in the in the 18 and early 1900s, but very poetic. Rav Shapiro's words were, you know, when you learn a commentary like the Leshem, Leshem Shvoi Vachlama, Rav Yashiv's grandfather, <coughs> who was the probably the main and most noted commentary on Kabbalah from the Ashkenazi side, he put it like this, he said, when you read his commentaries, you see exactly what he's doing and where he is, uh, completely explanatory. 
the Ramchal is, he said, you, you don't know where he's talking, you don't know where he's talking. In other words, as my friend Rabbi Borden once put it, he speaks poetically, right? As opposed to technically, it's a sort of a poetic license that he uses to put things in. It's, it's much more much more subtle and requires much more sophisticated interpretation to understand exactly where he's talking. However, we have a great personality like Rav Moshe Shapiro telling us that his Kabbalah is really the same structure as the earlier and more formal one. However, he differs on many very significant points. One of them is really this question of the spheres. Now, in this sort of a format on a podcast, I don't think we can go too deeply into the specific Kabbalistic ideas, but I will say this is perhaps the most striking thing that he says and which most seriously disagreed by certain later personalities is where the spheres originate. So let's talk a little bit about this and I hope our listeners will find this interesting. The notion of spheres or spherot is a notion of the divine influence coming into the world, divided up, shall we say, into various elements, and it's the recipe of combination of those elements that constitute everything in the world. So the notion we have is that if you go back far enough in the spiritual world, or high enough, shall we say, you get to an ineffable oneness. Hashem you get to an indivisible oneness. The term we usually use for that is Einsof. Einsof. This is not a name of God. It's just a terminology we use to talk about a dimension in the devolution of the worlds as a point of origin in which nothing can be discerned. Ein Sof. As Aleshem so beautifully points out, it's a negative name. Because to put a positive name there, you'd be saying something about something we can say nothing about. <laughs> and therefore, we, all we say is we cannot say anything about it. So we, instead of saying it has any positive qualities, which we may not do, we say it has no edge, no border, no limitations, no distinctions, Einsof, which means it's an indivisible, if you would like to use a metaphor, a white light that is infinite in extent. And we explicitly are not allowed to talk or even think about that because any specific thoughts would be wrong because they'd be particular thoughts in a dimension that has nothing particular. And that is where we begin. Now, that emanates down into a world which does have parts. After all, we live in a world that has dimensions up and down and left and right and forward and back and black and white and so on. This is certainly not a world of Ein Sof. This is a world of Sof. The question is, how does that become this? How does the world of origin of an Ein Sof where nothing is divisible or discernible, how does it become manifest in a world which has parts? And of course, that is the deep secret known as the Tsimsum, which we will not talk about today in any in any detail. But the Tsimsum is the, is the retraction or the hiding, the veiling, shall we say, of, of the infinite oneness, so that a world of multiplicity results. But however you look at it, that process of transmission, going from the Einsof, where there's no distinction, down into world distinction, at some point or other, that shefa, as we call it, or flow of spiritual being, or spiritual energy, if you want to use a more modern terminology, it becomes a manifestation of not oneness, but of tenness. And these are called the ten sfirot. These are divided entities. They are notions of separate spiritual qualities. And just like in mathematics, exactly like in mathematics, the numbers from one to ten form the basis. Right? Numbers in general, but let's say numbers from one to ten in the decimal system. These numbers form the basis of all that is constructed in the vast sophistication of mathematics and science. Similarly, in Torah, it's these ten spheres that form the whole of the universe. You might ask, how could so few qualities become such a complex universe? Well, let me remind you 
that in chemistry, right, you have very few elements in chemistry making the entire world, you know, all that you're familiar with, with in the world today, including your own body, Rabbi Mazna, is uh, nothing but carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, not, you know, a few, you know, one hand or two hands, you can probably count all the elements and the crafty nature of those is that when you put them together, you get amazingly novel creations. If you take, for example, sodium, which is a explosive metal, right? You expose it to the air, it explodes. And you take chlorine, which is a deadly poisonous green gas. When you put them together, amazingly, you don't get an exploding poison. You get salt, right? Which is a basic component of your body. Very cunning and crafty, right? Hmm. This, of course, evolutionists have nothing to say about. This is way before we get to the, the explanatory power of evolution. You're talking about the physical universe. So just a handful, just a handful of, of basic elements combine and recombine to give all the complexity of the world. Similarly in mathematics, just the numbers combine to give all the sophistication of mathematics and calculus and all the explanatory tools we have in science. In that fashion, the spheres are 10 basic qualities that come into the world. Perhaps in our next session, we can talk a little bit about what they are. They come into the world and they constitute the basic elements of the world. And when you combine them, you begin to get the products that we know of as the world. Our minds, our spirits, our bodies, all that lives in the world today, from the very highest angelic beings all the way down to the lowest piece of rock, are all formed from more and more condensed or crystallized versions of the ten, the ten spheres. Now, the Ramchal, of course, talks about these, as do all our Kabbalistic sources. And, of course, the spheres are grouped in various ways. Those groupings we call Paratsufim, which is another subject to talk about. And if Just to clarify, of these ten spheres our way of explaining the, the complexities of the world, or are we saying this is almost what God used to create it in some way? You've touched on one of the most difficult and vexed issues in <laughs> the Kabbalistic arena altogether. But let us put it this way. The formal teaching is that these are real in the deepest sense. They are the elements that Hashem used to create the world. Not just are they real, they're emanations of His own being. His own oneness, when it manifests as multiplicity, this is what it looks like. However, this is a very, very difficult subject. And to expand your question just one drop further, let me point out one of the most unique and uh, contentious issues that the Ramchal talks about, and that is where do the spheres begin? Where do they begin? And he makes the astounding claim, and he talks about this quite clearly in the Klach Pesrei Chochmah that we talked about, the astounding claim that the spheres begin in Ein Sof which means that in the world of no borders or boundaries, there are 10 elements. Of course, up there, they're not discerned as 10. Right? The way he puts it is that there's an ensophius, there's a, an endlessness or infinity that is drawn over them. Let's begin by noting that all this discussion, of course, is deeply embedded in paradox. Yeah. So however you cut it and wherever you try to explain it, it's only a question of a choice of which paradox do you choose. And all the Kabbalistic explanations, particularly about the Tzimtzum, are always expressions of paradox you're talking about at the end of the day there's only Hashem and his oneness and yet there is a real world of multiplicity and therefore you're dealing with paradox do you say well it's all really him and the world's an illusion as you touched on or do you say no he really contracted himself and created a world that is divisible and separate these are all fascinating and famous and highly contentious and vexed I would say even inflammatory debates in the spiritual in fact this particular debate was the subject of the original argument between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. The Hasidic side took on 
that the world is all only Hashem's oneness and the rest is, shall we say, illusory. And the Misnagdim said that is absolutely out of the question. Hashem created the world and if he wants to do it, he could do it. And of course, the Hasidim said to Misnagdim, what happened to his endlessness? And they said, well, we can't understand that. And they said to the Hasidim, if you say the world's only illusory in some sense, why are we obliged in mitzvahs? And maybe we can say Shema in places that are not clean because it's all illusory. And they said, well, we can't understand that. But of course, that lack of understanding, that choice of paradox, of which side of the paradox you view, of course, led to great wars and battles and had practical outcome, I might add. This is not something that Ramchal was involved in particularly. But if you say that the Tzimtzum is not real, then you have, of course, the danger of losing the endless infinity of understanding of God. And how, if you say that Simpson is real, again, if you say it is real, then you're talking about a world which is really separate in some way from God, very problematic, and you can lose sight of what we mean when we talk about Hashem. On the other hand, if you say that Simpson is not real, then time and place are all figments of our imagination, and you could end up davening Mincha at three in the morning, or who knows what. Indeed, and of course, that was one of the objections on the non-Hasidic side, that if you start taking that line, who knows where you'll end up negating Halakha. And of course, they said, well, if you don't take our view and you take yours, you'll end up forgetting God because you've forgotten that there's an infinity and you can, and you're part of that. And of course, at the end of the day, they're both true and they both became mainstream within Judaism. Now, the spheres, <coughs> the Sfirot, the Ramchal, makes the astounding claim, which is hardly agreed by, by all, in fact, very seriously contended and argued by others that the spheres begin in Ainsuf because they are part and parcel of the being of Hashem himself, so to speak, and they emanate down into the world simply by being revealed as being separate lower down. So the system he uses is the spheres are part of the Godhead, shall we say, or the Ainsuf. Only there they are not discernible and he cannot talk about them as separate because Hashem has spread his endless infinity over them, so to speak. But when he emanates them down into the world of the Tzimtzum, the world of the retraction, or the world of the manifest, then he allows the separateness to manifest. He removes his ensophius, is the way he puts it. Hashem removes his lack of boundariness away from these spheres, revealing them as separate. Which means that the spheres, when they come down into our world, are actually manifestations of the divine. The other opinion, which is against the Ramchal, which many others take strong uh, exception to what he says, is that the spheres are mechudashot, mechudashos, in other words, they are created. It's completely illegitimate to talk about spheres in the Ainsof, at least with nothing we can say about the Ainsof, but all we can say is that when the Ainsof starts manifesting in the positive aspects of a world that we can apprehend, in this world, the first manifestation that takes place is a manifestation of ten separate things, but they are created entities. And of course, each side the Ramchal solves many problems with his formulation, but he creates others. And of course, the formulation that the spheres do not have an origin in the Ein Sof creates its own philosophical and spiritual questions. But nevertheless, that was one of his teachings. So this has been a brief introduction to the spheres. Let's just add, if we may, perhaps for those of our listeners who prefer something a little bit more tangible, what do we mean by the spheres altogether? Let me mention the first three of them, just to give a feel for what we're speaking about. It shouldn't be completely abstract. And perhaps in our next session, we can take this a little bit further in practical application. The first of the three spheres that are manifest in the world, again, there are three higher ones that are only in the world of thought, but the, the best known, most often talked about and most often applied, are what we call chesed, gvura, tiferes. Chesed on the right-hand side, gvura or din on the left-hand side, and tiferes or tiferet in the center. Chesed comes first, 
right? As we say, Olam Chesed, Yibani, the world is built out of Chesed. And the definition of Chesed, or the right-hand side, or the quintessential male, if you like, is that Chesed is an outpouring of energy or or spirit or creation with no limitations at all. That's what Chesed is. It's translated in the Torah. It's it's uh, it's used the the, the language in the, of Chesed in the Torah is used to mean loving kindness, which is a spreading out of my love for you or for whatever it is in an unlimited fashion. It's also used as a term depicting or denoting sexual immorality. What is the connection? Well, immorality means not setting boundaries. Immorality means that saying yes to bonding in any undifferentiated way. So that means all relationships are acceptable. So therefore, that is a chesed. Chesed is not good or bad. It's just an unlimited spreading out of creation. And therefore, oilam chesed jibane, that means the world is built on chesed. And it's truly a point of origin. Why did God create the world in the first place? Because he's good, not because anything made him. Now, it's very important to know the difference between chesed and rachamim. Chesed means kindness for its own sake. Rachamim means kindness because someone needs you. If someone's hungry and you feed them, that's called rachamim. We translate that in English as mercy. Someone's cold, you clothe him. Someone has a need, you provide his need. It's a response to a need. But God didn't respond to a need to create the world. There was no one who needed him before. This is depicted by the pillar of chesed in the world, which is Avram. Abraham, what does he do? He sits outside his tent, hoping there'll be someone to feed. Now, nobody needs him. It's a boy scorching hot day. No one's traveling. No one needs him. Rachami means you sit outside your tent when you think there'll be people who need you. Chesed means, I don't care if there are people who need me. I want to give. My need, so to speak, is to give. Not because someone needs me, but that is my nature. And of course, that's why Avram is the great father of the Jewish people, just like Chesed is the point of origin of the world. And so Chesed is the creation, it's the original, shall we say, male energy. Why male? Because the male begins the pregnancy. The male is the point of origin. The female picks up the seed from the male and then produces the rest of the pregnancy. So the female is the one who gives it shape and form. But maleness is always unconditional outpouring of it. This is also why in the biological world, the male gives seed by the billion. The woman gives eggs only one at a time because maleness is an unbounded creative energy. And that's called chesed. The left-hand side is called din. Din means die, enough, boundaries, stop. Because if a world is made with infinite creativity, it's, it it's almost immediately becomes an ain't safe again. What does the Medrash say? Hashem began creating the world, and the creation spread like at infinite speed, right? Until Hashem, ad shegar bahem, until Hashem yelled at the world and said, stop, die. And then the world froze at its present dimensions. In other words, chesed creates with no borders and limitations and of course you need at that point to bring in boundaries and limitations and that's called din or gvura which is the female side the left hand side why is the female din or gvura because the female gives boundaries she takes the creative energy of the male and she forms the child in one particular form only the male seed contains billions of possibilities almost endless possibilities and she takes all that and condenses it down to just one the blessing of the male side is endless energy curse of the male side is nothing real, only potential. The blessing of the female side is she brings life to the world. The curse of the female side is only this one. That is the tension between the two sides. So chesed is the first, and I hope our listeners can begin to hear that these are natural things. These are not artificial constructs. These are natural things. All things must begin at a point of origin that has no reason if you go far enough back. And all things must have a limitation that gives them their finite representation so they can live in a finite world. And of course, finally, the problem is how do you put these two opposites together? 
One is an endless creation and one is a total limitation. How do you put them together? Tiferis, or Rachamim, where the two harmonize. The two hands come together, where the creation begins, but it's bounded just sufficiently to form a real entity, which still yet reflects the chesed of its point of origin. Let's finish with a practical application. When the rain falls, it's a chesed. But if it doesn't stop, it's a flood and kills everything. So for, for the blessing of the rain to be felt, it must fall, but it must also stop. If it falls without stopping, it's a flood and destroys the world. If it stops completely and never manifests, then you have no rain at all. So you need both. You need the rain to fall and you need it to stop. Now the question is, when do you need it to stop? That's called Rachamim. Exactly the harmonious point that balances the two. So exactly enough rain has fallen, but not too much. That's exactly the point of Rachamim. Let me add one final thought. Practical application when you raise a child. There's the right-hand side, which is chesed, saying yes and giving unconditional love. There's total discipline on the left-hand side, which the child needs as a framework. The difficult skill in parenting is, what's the point of balance? When do you say yes? When do you say no? And that's where the judgment, the element of harmony in male-female togetherness comes in. Anyway, of manner, this has been a brief introduction <laughs> to the Ramchal's thought and his take on the spheres. Again, this needs tremendous amount of study. These are not things to be grasped in a few minutes, but this has just been a brief introduction with one or two of the practical outputs of a world that he entered and taught us. So just to clarify, thank you very much, Roy Dance. All the ten spheres are almost, we're describing God in a way too. We're not just, we're not, sorry if we're going back to the... Well, we're like, describing God, but as he manifests in the world. So we're transitioning from what we call Hashem, or God, into a world that is finite and created. We're talking about it, the transition from the created to the created. But is God one of those names almost more? Meaning, because when you described how God created the world with chesed and unlimited giving, you almost had to stop it with with the din. Meaning he's, he's both. He's not more chesed than you almost had to... T- Absolutely not. He's the origin of all of them. And he pours his being into the world through these. And this is the formula and the recipe and the chemistry that he uses to create our world. Great. Well, thank you very, very much, Rabbi Tatz and Rabbi Hirsch, for a fascinating first episode. We're looking forward to continuing next week with a slightly more controversial episode, I would say. Rabbi Hirsch left us on a bit of a cliffhanger, and Rabbi Tatz will be giving more detail into his writings. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.